Welcome to Rise and Grind, the podcast where the best entrepreneurs, business experts, and top performers provide you with the inspiration and actionable tips that you need to be successful and live the life you want and deserve. Our goal is to become the next pods. Two million in revenue. Make your idols your rivals. And now, your host, Antonio DeMota. Hello, hello, everybody. Antonio Damota here. Thank you so much for joining me in another episode. I'm super stoked today to have Deb, Deb Gabor. I'm, 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 I hope to pronounce the name properly. <laughs> and she's a brand dominatrix, as she likes to call herself. And she's an investor pitch whisperer with legendarily bad travel karma. We need to ask her about that as well. And she's the founder and CEO of Soul Marketing, a successful brand strategy consultancy based in wonderful Austin, Texas. She's the author of a recent book called Branding is Sex, a book that explains the art and science of branding for entrepreneurs and marketers. She wants you to get your sexy back and move from being just friends with your customers to being long-term friends with benefits. Deb, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> it's a huge pleasure. Uh, Deb, did I miss something in your introduction that you'd like to add? Um, did you want me to talk about the legendarily bad travel karma? Absolutely. That's, I think, a question that everybody's having right now. <laughs> yeah. So anybody who anybody who flies, you know, fifty to a hundred thousand miles a year is is about to have some kind of travel mishap. Uh, I seem to have had more than my fair share, and it's legendary, and it's also been cataloged for my friends and colleagues and business followers on various forms of social media. So I've become a little bit infamous for it. Um, but that's where that comes from. All right, that's pretty cool. But you are alive and well. That's what it counts. So that's that's cool. Uh, let's talk about uh, soul marketing for a second. So when did you start uh, this brand strategy uh, consultancy? Well, I've been doing some kind of brand strategy or marketing for my entire adult life, and I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but it's been a really long time. You're only <laughs> as young as you feel, though. But I started this company back in 2003, so we've been around for 13-plus wonderful, amazing years. All right, that's awesome. So, you're, of course, you're, you're a branding expert, and let's talk a little bit about also, you know, branding is sex. Uh, you just recently authored this book. Why is branding like sex? In, in what regard is that? Well, I'm glad that you asked that. So, branding is like sex in this way. Uh, when I work with clients, sometimes what doesn't connect for them is this idea that your brand is not something that comes exclusively from you. Your brand has to include the hearts and minds of your audience, and you have to include your audience and your customers in the development of that brand. Because the best brands in the world are the ones that give people a feeling like they're walking on air, like they have the world on a string, or as I say in a very crass way, like they have the world by the balls. And so when I'm trying to connect the dots with clients, um, sometimes they look at me with this glazed look. And so I have them close their eyes and do like a little visioning exercise with me. I say, close your eyes and throw back your head. And I want you to think about the last time you had a mind numbing, toe curling orgasm. <laughs> right. And, you know, what does that feel like? What did that feel like to you? You know, what what memories does that evoke? How does that make you feel? How does that elevate your self-concept? How does that make you feel sexy? How does that make you want to have sex? And so where we connect the dots between the best brands in the world being those that tell a really awesome story about the user and sex is when I ask clients, okay, now that you've thought about that, I want you to think about your brand and how your brand gets your customers laid. So knowing that everyone 
whether it's a B2B brand or it's a B2C brand, everyone who buys your brand has a story that they're trying to create for their lives. And if they're successful in achieving the goals that are part of that personal story for that person, then they feel confident. They feel elevated. They feel like they can take on the world. They feel sexy. They feel like they want to have sex. So that's the idea. That's where the title came from. The whole book is not about getting people laid. It's more of a provocative title to get you to pick up the book and, and look into it and learn a little bit more about brand strategy. But that's the basic idea behind branding is sex. Gotcha. I, I love the, the title. I think, as you say, it's going to call a lot of attention. And uh, that's the top of the pyramid that you also talk about in the book, right? The the, the brand values pyramid. Can you elaborate on the, on the pyramid a little bit? Because I think it's very interesting. Sure, sure. Would you be willing to do a little exercise with me? Because I think that's a great way to illustrate for your readers exactly how the brand values pyramid works. All right, let's do it then. Okay, great. So uh, <laughs> when's the last time you purchased an automobile? Um, that's probably a bad example because <laughs> I don't, you don't drive. <laughs> I don't drive actually, but let's say, let's say, I don't know, let's say shoes. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. Let's say shoes. Let's take the the example of running shoes. And there's actually an entire chapter in the book devoted to my obsession with a couple of shoe brands, one of those being Zappos and the other one being a brand called Hoka One One, which are running shoes. But um, let's, let's talk about running shoes. Mm -hmm. So when you think about all of the brands of running shoes that you know of, what brands come to the top of your mind? Uh, Nike. Nike. Okay. What else? Um, Adidas. Adidas, right. Adidas, okay. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's Under Armour and there's Skechers and there are probably like 27 to 30 brands that if I really prompted you, you probably would know their names. You would be familiar with their, their names. Uh -huh. Okay. So in order to be considered a running shoe, what are some of the features that any running shoe needs to have? Uh, they need to be comfortable. They need to, you know, to uh, not fall apart when you use them. So they have to be resistant. Um, um, yeah, they have to have the rubber sole. You know, they have to kind of these kind of features that allow you to 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 run basically to feel comfortable. Meanwhile, you are running. Right. Exactly. So. We call those requirements for any brand that's in any category, whether that's an automobile, let's say it's servers, let's say it's a travel app. We call those things the baseline requirements or the ante to get into the game to be considered a whatever in that category. So in order to be considered a running shoe, you have to have all those features that you just listed off. You probably have to have a way of lacing the shoes. You have to have, you know, some kind of tongue in the shoes. Maybe you need to have removable insoles so that you can put your own custom insoles in there and things like that. Those are the baseline requirements. Now, if you go to the next tier of the pyramid, these are sort of bells and whistles, bells and whistles. They might be features. They might be benefits. They might be options. Um, but decidedly, they make a person feel a particular way. So what kind of running shoes do you wear? Uh, I wear uh, Nikes normally, actually. Mm -hmm. You wear Nikes normally? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So what are some of the features of the Nike running shoes that you wear that you like? And how do those features make you feel? Yeah, I like I like the design, you know. I like the design. I think also they are comfortable, so you know, they make me feel well when I when I dress them, when I wear them, right? So I feel, you know, I feel that I'm wearing something which is uh, which is nice. Uh, so it matches with my outfit basically. Right. Okay, great. So it says something about you as a user, yeah. right? You're wearing those running shoes not only for their functionality, but they give you the emotional benefit of making you look good, right? Those are the things that are in the middle tier of the pyramid. They're features and options. 
Um, you know, I, I wear running shoes, these Hoka One One running shoes that I wear, and they're ugly as, as all get out, and they have like a really, really thick sole, but they're zero drop shoes, and I like them because uh, when I run, they're good for body alignment. I'm an overpronator. Um, you know, I kind of enjoy the feeling that they give me sort of that I'm walking, I'm walking on clouds and I feel like I can run farther faster when I'm wearing them. So those are some examples of emotional benefits and functional benefits that are the middle tier of the pyramid. <coughs> Excuse me. Now at the top of the pyramid, these are the self-expressive benefits and the beliefs and values that this brand addresses. And really the, the essence of, you know, this branding is sex metaphor. So let's say um, somebody, you're sitting in an airport and uh, you're sitting in the boarding lounge. You have your legs crossed. Your pants leg is up a little bit. And <laughs> I see that you're wearing a pair of Nike running shoes. What do I know about you as a person from the fact that you're wearing those Nike running shoes? What do I know about you? You know, you, you know, I, I love sports. Uh, you know, I'm an active person that probably I'm into into um, healthy eating. Uh, you know, that I want to. You know, that I'm into sports. I think this this kind of things. Right. Exactly. I also know that just because you're wearing Nike shoes, you probably are the kind of person who has an internal dialogue with yourself about getting out and actually doing things, yeah, right? Exactly. Um, the Nike brand is really great, especially that Just Do It campaign that's been around, you know, for what seems like since time immemorial. But that, that campaign is really great because it stimulates an internal dialogue with the person who's wearing the gear and themselves, right? And so, you know, I see you as a person just because of what I know about the Nike brand, I see you as a person in a particular way. Those are the self-expressive benefits, right? And that's where the story of who you are as an individual really comes into play. So the brand values pyramid is a little bit like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You probably read that in the book there, that mm -hmm. the stuff at the bottom of the pyramid, those baseline requirements or the, the qualifications to be considered a blank in whatever category that is, those are equivalent to, on Maslow's hierarchy, things like uh, the basic physiological basic physiological needs like food, water, shelter, air, safety, things like that. The next tier of the pyramid, those emotional and functional benefits, the things they that the product and the brand enable you to do, and therefore the things they enable you to feel are sort of like in Maslow's hierarchy, things like esteem needs and affiliation needs and love needs. And then at the top of the pyramid, at the top of Maslow's pyramid is this essence of self-actualization. I don't know many people who are permanently self-actualized individuals, except for, you know, maybe a couple of Buddhist monks and my yoga teacher. However, we have moments, fleeting moments of self-actualization, and sometimes brands actually help us get there. So that's the essence of that brand value pyramid. The brand value pyramid is really about what is it about a Nike shoe that makes it a Nike and not an Adidas? Those are two different brands. But if you look lower in the brand value pyramid in terms of features and options and then the baseline requirements, they are basically the same. And so the example that I was going to give of automobiles, you know, every everybody who drives a car knows that a Mazda is not a Cadillac and a Cadillac is not a Mercedes-Benz. But if you were to strip everything away in terms of the features and functionality and the things that they do, they're basically the same. It really is the brand and the brand relationship and everything that goes with delivering the value proposition for that brand that differentiates those two brands from one another. I love that. And and also in fashion, like we discussed, you know, like uh, running shoes, if you compare them, they are they are so similar, right? It's it's totally about the, the branding, correct? I mean, absolutely. Uh, yes, they are fashion, so similar. for sure. 
Yeah, fashion is one of those places where brand really, really matters. Brand and experience and the delivery of that experience. I mean, you know, I'm the kind of person who, you know, who will buy an $800 belt because I, I, I like the logo on it, right? You know, yeah, who, exactly. needs an, who needs an $800 belt? I can walk into TJ Maxx and I can, I can buy a belt and put it around my, around my waist. And most of the time, like for instance, today I'm wearing a pair of jeans with my t-shirt over, over my belt buckle. But the fact that I know that I have an Hermes belt buckle underneath, that's about me and the story that I want to tell about myself. All right. So you, you worked with a lot of, uh, with a lot of companies, um, uh, you know, that come, come to you to ask, to ask your um, your advice, your opinion about about their 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 branding strategy, uh, what kind of exercise you go through with them? Do do you do the the pyramid exercise as well with them, or what else do you look into into uh, before uh, helping them out? And because you you have some huge companies, uh, how how huge companies also differ from from s small startups? Okay. Well, there's a couple of questions that are buried in there. The first is really when someone comes to us and they are trying to answer the deep existential questions of branding, what kind of exercises do we put against that? I'll answer that first. And then the second part of that really is, you know, how are big and small companies similar and different? So the, the first question there about like what kind of exercises we do, we absolutely do that brand values pyramid exercise. We do that as a group with a core team at the company. And usually I work almost exclusively with somebody who is in the C-suite. So it's going to be the CEO or the chief marketing officer or the chief strategy officer, chief customer officer, chief revenue officer, somebody who really is in charge of a company's relationship with their customers and is ultimately accountable because branding inside a company, regardless of the size, is everyone's job. So we work with a small group of people that may represent a marketing team or a branding team, plus these executives, plus anybody who is involved in the delivery of the brand to the inside and outside world. So we go through exercises like the brand values pyramid. We also do an exercise called the ideal customer archetype, which I want to talk about a little bit. Mm -hmm. The ideal customer archetype, what that does is it helps you create a picture, almost a, a visual that is a, a description of demographically or firmographically, but more importantly, psychographically, which means attitudinally and behaviorally, who is the singular customer who is most highly predictive of your success? So what, what happens in marketing and branding, you've probably heard of market segmentation, right? Mm -hmm. Market segmentation divides audiences. Market segmentation is, is an exercise for targeting and, and using tactics to reach certain audiences. Market segmentation in itself is not for the brand. So there, there is a, a time and a place for market segmentation, but a lot of times what happens with companies, especially very well-established companies, is they lose touch with who did we create this brand for? Who is that singular customer for whom we are most appropriate and that we really are targeting everything we're doing? So the ideal customer archetype exercise really is to envision almost like a unicorn customer who is if if all things were perfect in the world and and you could get every single person in the world who looks exactly like this you would probably only need about 20 of them so we go through this ideal customer exercise because it gives the brand a north star to point towards and when we go through that brand values pyramid exercise we always keep that particular customer in mind gotcha. another Another exercise that we might do is what's called the brand archetypes exercise. So there's, there's a couple different pieces to branding. 
There's the strategic piece, which is the who are we? Who are we that to? Why do we exist? You know, what's our purpose and passion? How are we going to how are we going to answer the the deep questions for customers that get them laid and all of those things? That's sort of like the big B brand strategy. And then there's the small B brand strategy, which is really about the delivery of the brand. And so the next exercise we might do is a brand archetypes exercise. And so uh, I like uh, archetypes because they really help you envision things that, that are mental anchors for you. And so um, the, the 12 brand archetypes come from classic characters in literature, in the Bible, in movies. I believe every one of these archetypes probably exists in everyone's favorite Star Wars movie or Indiana Jones movie. You, you can see them all over the place, but they are characters. They are character roles, right? Mm-hmm. And there are 12 of them. And as a brand, when you think about, first of all, who is your ideal customer? Secondly, what is the story they're trying to create for their lives? Thirdly, how do you get that person laid? Then you can assess your role as a brand in what character do you need to play in the story of your customer's life? And so that's when we do the brand archetype exercise, and that sort of dials that in so that you can get to a place where you can assess a personality and a role and a voice and a point of view. Uh, so um, I think you wanted to address now the, the second question I asked you um, um, about the um, the difference between big and small companies. How do they differ when they approach you to uh, refine their branding strategy? When big companies are approaching us, it's usually because they have some kind of, I call these like the deep existential crises and questions of business. It's usually uh, when they when they have an issue. For instance, maybe they've been asleep at the wheel and they've completely lost their way as a company and they're losing market share, they're losing customers, customers are unhappy. Um, that might be a reason that they come to us. They might come to us when they are introducing a new product or opening up a new market or or trying to completely reposition into a new product or service area. Those are the kinds of reasons they come to us. It's usually when uh, they're having some kind of strategic challenge, they'll come to us. And how they're different than early stage companies is that they often have an existing brand. And so what happens is these existing brands are situations where the brand may have taken on a life of its own because they didn't manage it effectively. They didn't take care of it. They didn't steward it. Something in the market came and changed very rapidly. Maybe they were late to market with something. Um, so, so those are some of the characteristics. It's usually something like that. Uh, big companies will come to us after maybe they get a big infusion of cash, after they have a, a major funding event, uh, when they make a strategic acquisition or they spin something off. Those all would be reasons why they need to invest in their brands. And so the process that we use is really no different. The amount of discovery work or the amount of research work that we do in order to bring the voice and point of view and and the words of the customer to the process is a little bit more extensive and frankly more expensive because there's just more people to talk to and we have to do it in in a much more methodical kind of way. Um, but the process that we go through is exactly the same for smaller companies. And then smaller companies, earlier stage companies, they come to us. I work with early stage companies, um, often pre-brand, uh, sort of when they're in stealth mode and they're going through the process of trying to figure out, you know, exactly where they're going to take their, their product or where they're going to 
take their service, what is it they're going to be directionally, what their company is going to turn into and what its role and relevance is going to be in the customer's mind. So I work with them very, very early stage like that on on issues of uh, product market fit and market validation. Um, but we also work with earlier stage companies that maybe have already gone through the process of identifying who their who their customer is and how they can be ultimately relevant to them with a winning value proposition. And maybe they've even created a brand and we work with them on helping them articulate that brand in an effective way and making recommendations for their go to market strategy. The final way that I work with early stage companies is on their investor pitches. So a couple of years ago, back in 2013, I started having all of these investors and entrepreneurs who were in my own network, maybe people who had worked for big companies and had uh, had retired or gone off and started their own companies, um, successful serial entrepreneurs who had had uh, who had had great exits and were now investing in other people's companies as angel investors uh, and other people just investors from my network coming to me and saying, hey, Dan, we need some of that big brand voodoo that you do, but we need it at this at this critical point in time, which is when we're raising money, when we're pitching investors. And so I got the idea to start a business around helping early stage companies tell their story effectively to an investor audience through their investor pitches. So that's that's yet another way that I help early stage companies with really the storytelling aspect of their brand. Yes, I wanted I wanted exactly to mention that I was interrupting you uh, uh, just to mention investorpitches.com. You just you just uh, talked about it, and and uh, you know it's interesting because you you say that you know you have raised amounts ranging from 250k to up to 85 million dollars, uh, but as, uh-huh. we, as as we can see. The, the the you know the breadth strategy um, refinement or or uh, exercise is actually similar from for small companies big companies from startups to well established companies right yes yes definitely um, the the process is the same we we do the same exercises we just do them on a different scale the one thing that that is the common thread between large, medium, and small companies is the fact that your brand can't exist without really understanding what is the story that the customer wants to tell about their lives. And again, this is appropriate for both business to consumer as well as business to business brands. At the end of the day, people buy things from people, right? And mm-hmm. people buy things for people. So, um, you know, that is the common thread, just the processes that we use to incorporate that customer input into the development of the brand are just a little bit different. We might use like really extensive, um, large market surveys and qualitative product projects for larger companies. Whereas for earlier stage companies, we might do a lot of what I consider to be like mother-in-law research, which is, you know, go call your mother-in-law and ask her whether or not she'd use this product and how she would <laughs> use it. And, you know, what's a good way for that, that brand to bond with them. But all that stuff is actually covered in the branding a sex book. And, and I should just put another plug in for that because um, I, I am giving the entire method, methodology away for free. Step by step, if you go and you get this book and you read it and you apply this to your brand, whether you're 
an early stage company or a later stage company, or even for a personal brand, if you follow the exercises step by step, you will come out of that process with the underpinnings of your brand strategy. And it was my goal to just get that information out there because what gets me out of bed every day is the idea of helping other people be successful in their businesses. That's what really gets me jazzed. And this was one of the best ways for me to get that information out there. We love that. I'm going to, I'm going to, I highly recommend your book to everybody and I'm definitely going to link it to the show notes. Uh, I think it's phenomenal. Um, so Deb, I wanted to ask you something before we jump into the firebolt round because, you know, you gave here, you know, a lot of bombs of wisdom. I wanted to ask you the last question about branding for our listeners. How frequently do you think that you have to, to go through this you know, this branding strategy um, exercise, uh, how, you know, every six months, every year, every revenue, you know, revenue increase, you know, what, what kind of, how, how often should we do it? So uh, I think what I said in the book is branding, how, you know, when should you do it? Early, often, and always. Branding is this ongoing pursuit. So you don't necessarily need to go through a full-scale branding exercise with all of these, these different activities and, you know, going out and doing customer research. You don't need to be doing that constantly. Um, you know, you need to do that once. I would say that brand has a shelf life of probably three to five years, you should just be checking on it and doing like a brand validation exercise in a formal way every three to five years. However, the job of branding, um, which is sort of on an ongoing basis, uh, delivering on your brand value proposition through your relationships with your customers, that is something that you need to be paying attention to every minute of every day. Because it's when companies lose touch with their customers and they lose touch with what's going on in their industry and they lose touch with how people are relating to the brand, that's when they end up with the broken brand promise, I call it, where, where they let the market take on the ownership of that brand. And so, you know, it is imperative that you're all always paying attention to the brand. It's not a one and done scenario. It really is an ongoing activity and uh, everyone in the company plays a role in delivering the brand on an ongoing basis. All right. Love that. Deb, all right. So are you ready for the firebolt round? I am ready for the firebolt round. Let's, let's do let's, it. Let's do it. Okay. Favorite business book. And you cannot say so yours. Cl- you cannot say yours. No, I... I am not going to say mine, actually. Um, <laughs> I have a favorite business book. It was actually published in 1981. It's an oldie and a goodie and a classic, mm-hmm. and it's been around in the branding business a lot longer than I have, and it is called Positioning, and it's by Al Reese and Drac- Jack Trout. Um, it is still, to me, and I have read thousands of books, it is still, to me, the definitive book on brand positioning. Oh, so nice. I recommend that to everybody. All right. Love it. Uh, what's your favorite online tool? So um, I just became addicted to Waze. You know, what What an excellent online tool. Um, I'm on the road a lot. I'm driving a lot. And, and I love how they've gamified driving. I, I love it. So what's your favorite entrepreneurial and motivational quote? So I don't know if people would consider Winston Churchill to be an entrepreneur, but he said something a long time ago that has just always, always, always stuck with me. And that is, when you're going through hell, keep going. I'm a big proponent of, you know, when things are bad and you feel like you are down at the bottom of the hole, you know, ask for a rope to help you up out of the hole or don't ask for the shovel to dig it deeper. I I really like the idea of when you're going through hell, keep going. I love that. And somebody successful you admire and follow. 
Um, I follow Richard Branson. I find him just incredibly irreverent and also just a, a, a great sort of visionary entrepreneur, somebody who's a little bit down to earth. And um, I, I'm fascinated by the fact that he's kind of created a, a cult of personality and brand around his entrepreneurial vision. And so, um, Deb, knowing what you, this is a difficult question, I know, knowing what you know now, and if you wanted or had to start a new business today, what would you do? So if I had to start a new business today, um, I have this really, really fun idea that I don't want to talk too much about, but it's actually in the vacation <laughs> rental business. When I first started my company, one of my very, very first clients was HomeAway, who is also mm -hmm. the owner of VRBO and a lot of other successful online vacation rental sites. Um, and I have a vision for um, a completely unrelated to branding business that is in the vacation rental business and it's for vacation home owners, um, which I am a vacation home owner. I'm very entrepreneurial in the real estate business and I enjoy owning, renting, marketing vacation homes. And so this is, this is one of those sort of like entrepreneurial birth stories that, that comes from a problem that I myself was experiencing. So that is what I would do. All right, that's awesome. You know, actually, the the last inter you know, we had an interview uh, with um, with a company that is sort of a competitor of Airbnb. Uh -huh. um, so I don't know if you want to check that out. Uh, <laughs> I listened to that interview. I found it fascinating, and I love that it that it grew out of uh, University of Notre Dame and and some really serious uh, sports fandom. I thought that was really really cool. Great yeah, idea. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. So, um, uh, what advice would you give to your twenty year old self? So the advice I would give to my 20-year-old self, I relate to this um, very, very strongly right now because I just delivered my one and only daughter off to college yesterday. Mm -hmm. um, and the advice that I gave her was nobody effing cares why you don't have this done or why you didn't do this or why you woke up late or um, why you don't want to do something. I would go back and give my 20-year-old self the advice of nobody really cares. Keep your head down, do your work, work hard, um, do more than anyone asks you and, and do the best at it. And if you don't like it, like continue to play through the pain. Uh, if you're going through hell, keep going. That's what I would tell my 20 year old self. I had a lot of stops and starts as a young person and a lot of, you know, just created a lot of drama around myself, not wanting to do the heavy lifting and the hard work. And boy, I sure am glad that I did. Um, mm -hmm. but I would go back and kick my 20 year old self in the ass. All right. Love that. Love that. And, um, Deb, how can our listeners connect with you? What's the, what's the best way? Do you want to share your, uh, your websites? your um, your social media accounts? Sure, sure. So one of the best ways to get with me is on Twitter and it's at Deb, D-E-B underscore soul, like the sun in Spanish. That's one way. Another way is at the soul marketing website, solmarketing.com. I also have a blog there with lots of blog posts and information. Um, and then uh, brandingissex.com, some information about the book and a link directly there so that you can buy it online if you like. And then the final way that people can get in touch with me if they're interested, for instance, in having our team help with the, the telling the story effectively to an investor audience investorpitches.com that's investorpitches.com so those are all the best ways to get in touch with me that's amazing Deb thank you so much you are the real deal thank you so much for being on Rising Grind today thank you I appreciate thank it you, Deb. I, thank you I hope you have a great day thank you too and that's it for today guys thanks so much for listening I hope you enjoyed this episode of Rise and Grind podcast 
The show notes are available at our website, riseandgrindpodcast.com. If you love the show, please do not forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. Of course, feel free to send us an email or leave a comment on our website. Also, don't forget to follow us for a lot of visual inspiration on Instagram and Twitter at riseandgrindhq. Our next episode is going to be amazing. Make sure you do not miss it. Until then, keep grinding.